Well, welcome everybody to the latest edition of Star Cells and God. This is the podcast where we explore the frontiers of science and what new discoveries tell us about God's existence and the reliability of Scripture. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I'm joined in studio today by Jeff Zwerink, who's an, an, a Christian apologist and an astrophysicist. And we both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is the organization that sponsors this podcast. So if you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, www.reasons.org, or you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then last but not least, watch this program on our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and subscribe and set a reminder, click the bell, and that will give you a notification the next time a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. So welcome, and without any further ado, uh, we're going to be getting into today's discoveries. Jeff, you've got a discovery for us on quantum entanglement. Is that right? Yes, it is quantum entanglement. And it's little it's a little less of a new discovery because these have been around for a while, but it's brought into light because there were three scientists who were recently awarded the Nobel Prize for their work in investigating what's going on with quantum mechanics. And just to kind of give a little bit of background, uh, you know, we have this universe that we go out and make measurements of. We got these laws of physics that determine how things behave. But starting in the early 1900s and progressing throughout the two, you know, up, up to the current day, we're increasingly recognized that we live in a quantum mechanical world, not a classical world. And there are just some, a lot of really bizarre things that flow out of that. And so, uh, you know, the ultimately, or kind of what led to the discovery of the quantum mechanics was this recognition that as you heated things up, you expected them to get hotter and hotter and hotter, which they do. And you expected them to give off higher and higher wavelengths, which they do for a while until they don't. And this phenomenon, as people began to investigate it, and, and there were other things that played into that, led to this realization that our world comes in quantized packets instead of being continuous all the way down to a sp arbitrarily small scales. And this is, you know, the, kind of the, the founder or the headwaters of developing quantum mechanics theory. And one of the interesting things about quantum mechanics, though, is that you can write down this thing called a wave function. And as you perform different operations on the wave function, you can make predictions of what kinds of results you're going to see from experiments. Incredibly accurate in terms of its predictions. But there are some kind of odd phenomena that play out. Uh, you know, you come up with a new way of looking at things and odd phenomena play out. I mean, you know, with general relativity, that was a fundamental change in how we looked mm -hmm. at the world. Instead of space and time being these static quantities that everything just operated in, general relativity said, when Einstein introduced general relativity, it said that, no, lo and behold, space and time were these dynamic entities. And one of the ways that these dynamic entities worked were that if you concentrated enough mass, you could get a rupture in the fabric of space-time, and you get a black hole where even moving at the speed of light, light cannot escape. And so it's this weird phenomena that then people went out, and lo and behold, you can measure that there are these things mm -hmm. called black holes in there. 
So with quantum mechanics, the, the interesting part that shows up is that this uh, you can predict very accurately what the outcomes of an experiment will be, statistically speaking, mm -hmm. but on any given measurement, you don't know what you're going to get. And so people have been wrestling with this idea of, you know, is quantum mechanics really, or is, is our world really statistical in that uh, there's this wave function and the peculiar property of the wave function is that when it's describing things, so for example, talking about an electron, electron can have a spin. It can either be spin up or spin down. Well, in the wave function, the way it's formulated, it's a superposition of those. Mm -hmm. And so you, you look at the mathematics and the wave function says, all right, the, the, the electron is is in this combination of spin up and spin down. Yet when we make measurements, we always measure either spin up or spin down. And so there's this big question of what happens in when you make a measurement. Does Is the wave function really what's real and it collapses into this other, you know, just one of the outcomes? Or is the wave function just a mathematical tool that you know, it's, it's really just unclear what reality looks like is mm -hmm. what it amounts to in there. And so as, again, as people were developing quantum mechanics, there were these interesting things that you could actually take things and entangle them mm -hmm. quantum mechanically. Now you can spread them apart, move them apart to large distances. And by making a measurement on one, because they're entangled, mm -hmm. I can make a measurement. And that tells me something apparently instantaneously about what's going on with the other one. And so this, you've got this kind of spooky action at a distance is the term given for it. So I'm making a measurement here. There isn't time for light to propagate, yet I know what's going on over here. And so, you know, Einstein said, nah, we don't have this spooky action at a distance, had this idea that, well, maybe there are some hidden variables, variables that we can't measure, but that are actually core or determining what's going on. And, uh, you know, people thought, okay, that's an interesting idea, but there's no way to test it because these hidden variables are by definition unmeasurable. But in the 60s and 70s, people were able to do some work, particularly a guy named Bell was able to do some calculations and show that when you're working with these entangled systems, if there are hidden variables, there's a limit to how large certain quantities could be. Mm -hmm. And so if there are hidden variables, these measurements will always be below a certain level. But quantum mechanically, you could exceed that value. And so people have been working mm -hmm. to test this idea, do we violate these inequalities, these Bell's inequalities? Because if we did, that would say, okay, we're fundamentally a quantum world. Well, the Nobel Prize was given for a series of experiments where they were able to measure these uh, outcomes and show that lo and behold, they exceed the threshold for a classical world so that we really do live in a quantum world. If you kind of bring up the, the diagram there. So what you can do is in that middle there, that's just a way of saying, okay, we're making some entangled photons. And then we direct the photon, you know, the photons are moving away from this, this source. And then you pass it through these polarizers mm -hmm. and for certain angles of the polarizers, you expect the quantum mechanical outcomes to be very different from the hidden variables outputs. And so people were able to make these measurements 
and show that at these things you exceeded these inequalities, it says there's quantum, mecha- or quantum mechanics is the best description rather than the classical hidden variables description. But there are some loopholes in this because it could be that in the process of entangling, you've done things where you've actually carried information away mm-hmm. that even though later you're doing something, there, there could be correlations you just weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, uh, you know, there were more experiments done where not only have you now entangled things, there you've put this other piece in the experiment that randomly changes the polarization of the, the detectors. And you can trigger that off of cosmic rays coming in or random processes. And so it removes any of the loopholes that say, okay, there's actually some piece of information we're not measuring or some correlation. We're actually finding that these Bell's inequality theorems are violated, that we do live in a quantum world. And what that means, so this is kind of the bottom line apologetics of it. One, they got the Nobel Prize. This is just cool, fascinating work. But it really just shows us what a bizarre world we live in. Mm -hmm. What this means is that we have this intuitive idea that two intuitive ideas. One is that what influences me can only be things that have been within where light can travel from there to here. That's called local localism. So that's one fundamental idea that we have. The other idea we have is that there's this idea that things are real. And these are a little bit more philosophically, they're, they're more sophisticated than what I'm saying. But the idea that only things within my light cone can influence me, but also that things are there whether I've measured them or not. And that's called realism. And what these violations of Bell's theorem say is that you can't have a universe that is both local and real. Mm. And so where that plays out when you're doing these uh, uh, quantum entanglement events, you can spread them out far enough apart, make a measurement here, make a measurement here, and you find that they're correlated even though there's no ways for photons Mm -hmm. to communicate between them. And so you've got this choice. Do you get rid of localism or is localism wrong or is realism wrong? Now, I'm inclined to think local, you know, things being local are wrong, that things are there whether you Mm -hmm. measure them or not. But it does just kind of get at the nature of reality. If you kind of, the, the next slide there, uh, you can go out and look at uh, the wiki page and there's this interpretations of quantum mechanics. And why I bring this up is because when Einstein proposes theory of general relativity, it explains why gravity works. Gravity works because of the warping of the fabric of space-time. The mechanism determines what we measure. And so you make calculations. And nobody has their interpretation of general relativity. General relativity, the reality determines the equations and the measurements you make. But you look at quantum mechanics and you got the ensemble, the Copenhagen interpretation. That's where the wave function collapses into one state or the other. You've got the many worlds interpretation where both exist and you know, the, the, the electron is, takes all pass. I mean, you've got all these weird interpretations of what the fundamental nature of reality is where you don't have that in general relativity. And it just highlights that we are lacking a genuine fundamental understanding of how the world works. And where I think this has apologetic interest, and I don't want to push this too hard, but I think Mm -hmm. it's an interesting idea, that we think that we've got, okay, write down the equations, we can predict everything exactly as they're going to happen. It seems like God has structured this world so that 
yes, there is this orderly, reliable regularity to nature, but there's also these non-intuitive where things that are much further away from me can impact what's going on with me. And, you know, I mean, just as a Christian, I know that I, I am convinced that God communicates with me through prayer. Well, there's, if, if everything is local and real, I don't necessarily see how that could play out with God, apart from God just changing the physics of the universe when he wants to communicate with me. But if there's this kind of underlying fuzziness to the reality of nature, God can now communicate. I mean, it worked very easily. Or the idea that quantum mechanics behaves that way makes it far more reasonable to think that God might be doing something yeah. similar to that. And so I think it, it just gets at we have a lot to understand about how our world works. And we need to not be quite so smug of, oh, we've got all the things worked out. We're going to wrap everything up, explain everything. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to be in this nice tight ball. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, you make an interesting point about the idea that that maybe one means by which God affects the world, particularly through prayer or affects us, maybe through, again, quantum indeterminacy and this mm-hmm. idea of quantum entanglement. And, you know, I, I've seen some people who have argued, well, God is creating through an evolutionary process uh, and that he's actively involved in every instant of that that evolutionary history mm-hmm. of life on earth it's just invisible to us because he's god's influencing the outcome of evolution at, at the level of quantum indeterminacies right and i've always been a bit uncomfortable with that not that i don't think it's a possibility but i've always been a bit uncomfortable with that simply because it seems to me that if god is working as creator what i read in scripture that it would be clearly revealed mm-hmm. to me. So I don't have a problem with using that mechanism maybe to explain prayer or uh, the way that God may interact with us, but it seems like I'm uncomfortable with that notion as you know, God employing those me- that mechanism as creator. So how would you, no, how would you respond? Not, not looking for agreement or disagreement. No, no, but, that, that's actually... It seems to me there's two fundamentally different things we're talking about there. One is God's revealed in Scripture that, hey, he's done certain things. I would expect to find the signature of that written in creation. And if God is working behind the scenes, it's all just, I mean, the laws of physics are not God not working. But if if that's what it is, it seems like that signature is harder to read, and it seems like God has put that signature there. I guess where I'm where I'm thinking this is relevant is less about how do we explain things, God's activity, where we don't in a way that we don't see, as it is this idea that God knowing everything predetermines everything, or you know that there are things that are appear to be fundamental to our universe but aren't. Mm. Um, you know, I know, you know, talking enough with Ken Samples that God is timeless. Well, I mean, time seems to be just a fundamental quantity. And if, if in, in my, my, in this world, time is unavoidable, it's a fundamental part of who we are. But it's not, if I understand what theologians have said, it's not a fundamental, mm-hmm. this is the determinant of all existence. It's a restriction of it's something that exists in our universe here that we experience, but it's not something I have to talk about with God or that God necessarily has to have time. And so this thing that I see as fundamental is actually 
a constraint that God has put on the world, not a fundamental aspect of reality. And I see that kind of at play here. And, you know, how could God know everything and yet we still have choice? Well, if everything's local and real and everything's, you're right, that doesn't, those are incompatible, but this is kind of pointing Mm -hmm. to something beyond, Mm -hmm. or rather, we we see evidence that we don't live in a local, real world where you now have these things that can not violate the laws of physics, but where you can get information transmitted faster mm-hmm. than the speed of light. Let's not be so arrogant as to say, oh, we've got everything mapped out and there's no way that God's foreknowledge and you and I having a genuine choice is incompatible with one another. Right. Uh, I think that's really where I'm going, not we now have this means where God can set up the laws of physics and everything works, except God's got this tool to work behind the scenes, if you will. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It does. That's that's a very helpful distinction, I think, a very Mm -hmm. helpful clarification. But I'm I'm just curious, how do you you see that? Because this idea that, you know, we have to give up only things local to me can influence me, or that things aren't there if I'm not observing them. We have to give one of those up. That's just that's just kind of like mind blowing, if you will. Yeah. It, well, you know, I, I'm not sure how I, I would react to that. I I've taken enough quantum mechanics <laughs> as a graduate student to know to keep my mouth shut when it comes to discussions on quantum mechanics, and it always amuses me that there are people that are speaking about quantum mechanic effects that shouldn't be talking about it at all. Solid not point. you, <laughs> not you, but, but well, you I notice I'm very measured in what I'm saying just yeah, for that reason. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, you know, one of the things when I was, um, you know, a grad student really working in learning the basics of quantum mechanics and I did take some, you know, I took three or four graduate level courses in quantum chemistry. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I wouldn't, I'm far from an expert, but I, Again, I know enough to, to dig myself a deep hole. You know, the, the, what the big struggle I had was not being able to picture what was going on. Yeah. And then I had that epiphany one day where it's like, give that up. Mm-hmm. Don't worry if you can picture it or if it makes sense. Just this is the way the quantum world works. And just treat it as a, a world that has a different set of rules than right. what I'm accustomed to. And then once I did that, it was, I was very comfortable working in, in, mm-hmm. in quantum mechanics, point, yeah. you know, but it, it took that. So I think that's to your point, like th- there's a, we want to hold on to this idea that maybe, you know, that there is this, we live in this local universe mm-hmm. or, you know, or the universe characterized by localism. And that's a convenient way to think about it because, because maybe we can picture things, mm-hmm. but we actually give up on what constitutes reality. And I think you make a really powerful point that, you know, when you start thinking about the world being a quantum mechanical world, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for for things being possible that I think someone from a strict materialistic perspective mm-hmm. may, you know, may, preclu- may preclude, um, where a person yeah. of faith may be far more open to it. You know, your comment about, you know, your recognition that you need to just kind of quit trying to understand and just this is the way it works and do it and it works. That actually seems to me kind of a parallel way of how I think about Christianity, if you will, Mm. that 
not that it can't be understood. I mean, you know, I mean, there's 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 places where you have okay, I get a little bit of what's going on, going on. But if what Scripture says is true, this world is not the ultimate reality, and so we're wondering, you know, how can God be everywhere at the same time, but yet not seen? How can God know or you know, foreknow everything, but yet we have free will? You know, th- these are questions that have plagued mm-hmm. humanity for millennia. I wonder if there's not just a sense of, okay, God says this is the way it is. Let's live that way, and it, and it works, if you will. Mm-hmm. Not that we don't keep trying to probe and understand, but don't let our lack of understanding negate the fact that that's the way it is. And just embrace what God has said and live that way. Because there's a very real sense where when you do that, it it works. Yeah. Well, well you know— um... You know, our, our, our colleague, Hugh Ross, makes this argument that I think is really interesting, and that is that one reason he is convinced that Christianity is true is that there are ideas in Christian theology, ideas in Scripture, but then in Christian theology, that if you and I were making up a religion, in our wildest dreams would never come up with those concepts. Right. Right, and so, you know, and so when you look at uh, according to Hugh, other religions, you see religions that seem to be anchored in what we could understand or what right. makes sense to us. And so it's an interesting argument that, you know, just the, the sometimes the bizarre nature of Christian theology, you know, uh, bizarre in the sense that it's so unfamiliar to our experience and yes. that leads to these questions that seem to be where there seems to be these contradictions when in mm-hmm. fact they very well may not be if we think about maybe reality as being something very different than what we experience in our own limited finite capacity. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, that's a, we live in a bizarre world, not bizarre as in, well, bizarre as in we couldn't even begin to dream <laughs> this up if we were coming up with it based on what we know. So. Okay. Well, thanks, Jeff. That was great. I'm going to go ahead and, and, uh, get started with my uh, discovery. And uh, uh, I don't know, you're a little bit younger than me. Oh, no, we watched The A-Team growing up. I love that show. (laughs) Always blowing something up and, you know, you love it when a plan comes together. Oh, great, Jeff. You're you're, uh, setting me up beautifully. Well, you know, I was an undergraduate student in the 80s and then became a graduate student. And so I didn't have a lot of time to watch TV. So I didn't actually watch the A-Team, but if I had the time to watch TV, I definitely would have watched the A-Team. And I think it was like these guys that were uh, former special force right. force uh, operatives that were accused of something they didn't do and were court-martialed right. and in prison and escaped and trying to clear their name. Right, right. So, and, and, and of well, course... just going out trying to help people who are otherwise... In a bad in a bad way, <laughs> right? Soldiers of fortune, and and you know, and and this was such a pop culture phenomena in that day that even though I didn't watch it, I knew who all the characters were. <laughs> I knew their signature lines. You know, just being part, being immersed in the culture. Oh, that's funny. And you know, and and you just said it. You know, uh, John Han- was it John Hannibal Smith, right? Uh, you know, his signature line was, I love it when a plan comes together, you know, <laughs> chomping down on the cigar. Well, you know, and it's funny because that ha- that that line has had such a lasting effect 
that I hear people say it today oh, really? okay. that are much younger than me. And it's like, I know that you probably never watched the A-team, right. let alone even know what the A-team is. So, you know, it's interesting that that line from a TV series actually has become kind of part of our, our vernacular. Right. But there, there's a, an, you know, there's something very gratifying when a plan comes together. Not that that's happened that much for me, but when it does, it's very gratifying. But uh, there is a, a recent series of discoveries where people are looking at the question, what makes us unique as human beings, mm-hmm. uh, that makes it seem as if, boy, when human beings appeared on the scene, that there was some kind of plan that came together just the, mm-hmm. the way that it should. And, uh, and it all has to do with, you know, understanding the genetic differences between humans and Neanderthals and understanding even more fully what the physiological effects of those genetic differences are. Mm. And uh, the paper I want to talk about is, was published, re- published recently in Science uh, by a team from the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany. And they were, again, looking at a, a, a single genetic difference between humans and Neanderthals that seems to have profound consequences, physiologically speaking. And, and this work is really being done in the context of a larger set of questions that physical anthropologists have, which is how do we understand our origin as modern humans? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then are we unique as modern humans or are we just simply more of the same compared to mm-hmm. the other hominins? And if we are unique, uh, what makes us unique? And is what makes us unique maybe explain why we are the sole you know, homo species alive today? Okay. Does it explain why, for example, Neanderthals and the, and the Denosovans went extinct? And, and so th- these are this, the questions that really are the, the focus of much of the work in physical anthropology. And, and again, that those questions center on who were Neanderthals and how do we compare to Neanderthals in terms of our cognitive mm-hmm. abilities and behavioral characteristics? Is this difference a genetic difference, physiological difference, both? Right. It's genetic differences that then translate into physiological effects. Okay. You could have genetic differences that have no physiological right. impact. So and, uh, so I guess that, that leads to my the, the follow-up question I had is, is it a single genetic difference that all humans are one and all Neanderthals are other? or is Because I, I think there are some differences where there's – you know the the population of the two overlap, but there's distinct populations. No, this is a this these are what I'm going to be talking about are genetic differences that uh, create a version of a gene that is unique to modern humans okay. and distinct from Neanderthals and and the Denosovans as well as uh, the pr- other primates, the gotcha. great apes, old world monkeys, and even other mammals. Gotcha. But you know when it it comes to you know the, probing these questions in um, you know, in physical anthropology, traditionally people have studied, you know, the anatomical features of fossils, have looked at the archaeological record, and have tried to extract that understanding. And, uh, you know, in, in the last couple of decades, there's a whole new approach that's emerged based on our ability to isolate DNA fragments from, the, from fossil remains. And f- through these isolation and sequencing of these fragments, we now have high-quality genomes for Neanderthals and Denosovans. In fact, uh, multiple Neanderthal 
high-quality genomes that are available to us. And this that, allows, that's just as impressive as all get out that we it, can do something like that. In <laughs> fact, it's so impressive that the Nobel Prize <laughs> in uh, 2022 was awarded <laughs> to Zvante Paba, who is the pioneer. I just want you to know I did not coordinate that with you, that we we're both talking about <laughs> Nobel Prizes from this year. Yeah, we didn't, but it worked out, <laughs> you know, uh, because this has literally revolutionized how we understand uh, the hominins and, and really uh, how they compare to us. Mm-hmm. Because now that you have these genomes available – you can now do comparisons between Neanderthals and Denisovans and modern humans and uh, the great apes mm-hmm. and, you know, and the list goes on and on. And, and doing these comparisons, uh, there's, a, you know, the Neanderthal in the human genome are about 98 to 99% similar. Okay. Uh, it's highly similar genomes, but there are some differences. And, People have focused on the differences in po- in the protein coding regions and have cataloged about 96 differences, where there are 96 genes in the human genome uh, that are shared in the Neanderthal genome, where the gene the gene sequence is different, okay. and that difference translates into the production of proteins that differ by a single amino acid. Okay. So, th- th- so that's the. Uh, and there's about 20,000 genes approximately in the human genome. So it's a relatively small fraction where you do see a genetic difference. And the question becomes, well, is this genetic difference significant? Mm-hmm. And so initially people w- would just catalog the, these differences and look at the functions of the genes. And some of the genes where we see differences are genes that are involved in uh, neural development, okay. genes that have been implicated in neuropsychiatric disorders. Uh, Also, um, some of the genes are involved in uh, skull and facial development and other other aspects of uh, skeletal developments. And that actually can explain why we see some anatomical differences between humans and Neanderthals. People have even been able to infer gene expression Hmm. patterns for those genes and have seen differences in these genes, which are all suggestive that there are physiological consequences to these differences uh, and that these physiological consequences may actually uh, impact cognition, uh, indicating that maybe modern humans had a greater level of cognitive capacity than Neanderthals. And and so uh, one of these genes that had just been studied in this paper is a gene that's uh, Nicknamed TKLT-1 protein, and this you, thing, you you guys as uh, biochemists are even less creative and original than astronomers are in their names. Well, <laughs> true, guilty as charged. But this sta- stands for the transketolase-like transferase one protein, and it's a it's a protein that uh, was discovered to behave like a class of enzymes called transketolases, and it turns out that this actually behaves so much like transketolases that it actually is a transketolase, um, but the name still sticks. But this, this class of enzymes plays an important role in a, in a metabolic pathway or, uh, called the pentose shunt or the pentose phosphate pathways. And this is kind of an overview of of, of, of uh, intermediary metabolism, at least a couple of pathways. And the pathway on the left in the, the light blue, the kind of elongated uh, oval, is uh, the glycolytic pathway. And this is a pathway where glucose, as a, 
uh, a fuel source is broken down into two uh, uh, three carbon compounds called pyruvate. Uh, so one mm-hmm. glucose, which is six carbon molecule, a six carbon molecule, gets broken down into two pyruvates, and then they get funneled into something called uh, the Krebs cycle. Okay. And the net effect is that they are further broken down into CO2 and water. And the energy that's liberated by breaking those chemical bonds is trapped in molecules like ATP or NADH. Mm. Uh, and this is used to power different cellular processes. Uh, but there are intermediates in that pathway that can get funneled off into another pathway called, again, the pento shunt, because it's kind of a shunt off of the glycolytic pathway. Sometimes it's called the pentose phosphate pathway. And what ends up happening is that you have these intermediates that are pulled off that then start swapping carbon units back and forth with one another. And through that swapping process, which is mediated by two types of enzymes, transketolases and transaldolases, you wind up with a large pool of different types of sugars, uh, three carbon, four carbon, five carbon, six carbon sugars. And so a lot of the sugars like the ribose and the deoxyribose mm-hmm. that are used for RNA and DNA respectively are produced in this pento shunt, as are other uh, sugars that have uh, structural roles inside the cell. And also is a pathway in which you can introduce sugars that wouldn't go into the glycolytic pathway that can be uh, generated into forms that would be plugged into the glycolytic pathway, allowing the means to break down other sugars. So it's a a very important uh, pathway. So, so you got this process by which you get sugar into the body, and it now converts it into usable energy, effectively. Right. But it's not just this single pathway. There's pathway, or so along right. with the main pathway of making energy-intensive molecules right. or energy-useful molecules, you've got other things that make stuff that life requires, like the ribose right. sugars and presumably collecting stuff that you can use other places and re-injecting it back into the stream. So it's just a very complex or a sophisticated sugar processing network. Right. Now here, here's a, this is the details uh, of of what's going on there. And if you look closely, you can see a couple of places where transketolase is listed in the blocks. It's probably hard for people at home, but in other words, this is an integral component of this, of the carbon shuffling reactions of the pentose shunt. So, um, the, so these transketolases and other things are what facilitate these other side reactions from yes. or being able to happen and process. Okay. Right. Yes. And so then we, what we also see is that there is an interconnectivity between uh, the pentose phosphate pathway and the means by which you would make fatty acids. And so the end product of, of the... Um, Pentose shunt can uh, be fed into the fatty acid synthetic pathway. Also, one of the products that's produced in this pathway is a compound called NADPH, which serves as an energy source that also drives fatty acid synthesis. So transketolase is not only mediating locally the pathways in the, in the pentose shunt, but its activity is impacting other pathways as well. Mm-hmm. So when you so w- why do you want the fatty acids? That that's unclear. Oh, you're going to get to that. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And it's because people have discovered, and they don't understand why, 
But when you ramp up fatty acid synthesis, it actually ramps up the rate at which uh, neural stem cells undergo replication. Or, or oh, interesting. Right. And so people believe that fatty acid synthesis is a critical aspect of what's going on in neural stem cells, neural progenitor cells, mm -hmm. so that during the developing neocortex, uh, you have a high level of fatty acid synthesis, which supports the production of neural cells from these neural stem cells and neural progenitor cells, uh, allowing for the neocortex to develop. So, so presumably having less production of these, I don't even remember the terms, the, the TKLA. Right. More of that will facilitate right. larger brain activity or more, more right. brain material, less right. of that will have, okay. So, so as the activity of the transketolase mm -hmm. uh, increases, you're going to wind up with an increase in, the act in, in fatty acid synthesis. Gotcha, okay. Because you're making more of those materials available for the fatty acid synthetic pathways right. okay. to make use of. And that impacts basically neural development. So all that, you know, to, to kind of lay the groundwork. Okay, so, we, so we've got this genetic difference between humans and Neanderthals that plays into this sugar pathway right. that facilitates the development right. of fatty acids, which develop brain activity right. or brain, right. large right. brain capacity. Okay. So, so tra this transketolase, you know, like a transferase one protein, uh, the version in modern humans is different than the version in Neanderthals, Denisovans, primates, and in, even in mice okay. and other mammals. And uh, all of those organisms have the same version of the transketolase enzyme. In modern humans, it's a unique version. Mm, okay. But what makes it unique is a single amino acid difference. In humans, I think it's a, an arginine is has replaced the lysine. Okay. And so the question is, is that even significant, right? So, I mean, you could argue by implication, well, this might very well mean that, you know, there's a cognitive difference between humans and Neanderthals because this impacts basically neural mm -hmm. development. Um, but, you know, you, you don't have the experimental, the direct experimental evidence for that. And in the last couple of years, uh, this group at the Max Planck Institute primarily has pioneered an approach to experimentally evaluate these differences. Mm -hmm. And there are two tools that they're using. One is CRISPR gene editing, okay. where you could go in into the genome uh, of, a, of a model organism and replace the, 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 that organism's you know, gene with the human version of the gene mm -hmm. or with the Neanderthal version of the gene. Okay. And you can then look to see what impact does that have uh, on that model organism. Another tool that's available is to actually grow uh, what are called brain organoids. These are three-dimensional mm -hmm. cell cultures. Which, depending on the culture conditions, you get them to form like these little mini brain-like structures. Okay. Uh, and depending on the growth conditions, these... Uh, brain organoids can mimic different regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. And the longer they grow, the greater the proliferation in the number of cells, the different cell types, and even you start seeing structural differences within the interior hmm. of the brain organoid. So by combining these two methods, you can, for example, replace a mouse version of a gene with a human version and look at what effect does it have on the mouse mm -hmm. as it grows and develops. Or you can 
use the stem cells that you would use to create these brain organoids mm-hmm. and modify them right. with the Neanderthal version and begin to look experimentally at what are the effects. And So these experiments allow us to, instead of just saying, okay, we've got this genetic difference between humans and Neanderthals, that we can we make an inference that that might be responsible for the brain difference. We're now going to say, do we see things that actually validate that hypothesis? Right. right. So, I mean, the, in this particular paper, these researchers did really three main experiments. One was to take mice as a model system, and they replaced the mouse version of that, the transketolase-like transfer mm-hmm. one protein with the, the human version. And then they did a, another experiment where they replaced it with the Neanderthal version. Right. Right. Now, mice don't normally uh, express that particular enzyme in their developing neocortex. Hmm. And their brains, their neocortex is small and it's relatively smooth. There's a limited number of folds. And so what they noted is that when they used the her- human version of this, that a particular uh, stem cell called a basal radial glial cell actually proliferated at very high levels, hmm. much more so than in the wild type. Okay. Now, this is significant because this particular cell is a, is a type of stem cell. It's a progenitor cell, but it undergoes what's called asymmetric cell division, where it, when it divides, it produces a daughter cell that is a basal radial glial cell, and then another daughter cell that is faded to develop into a neuron. Okay. And so by... Exp- so in other words, it allows for a self-amplification effect mm-hmm. to go on where by having a large number of these cells that are undergoing cell division, you can actually create a larger number of neurons uh, with this particular progenitor mm-hmm. cell. And so they noted that the number of these cells proliferated, again, at a much higher level in the mouse brain than in the wild, than in the wild type. Okay, so when, when they have the, introducing the human right. variant caused the replication of cells that produce more neurons. Right. You didn't see that uh, effect when the Neanderthal version was introduced oh, wow. and, and was coaxed to be expressed. Right. So then they did another experiment. Did they have to coax the human one to express? Yes, or, oh, yes. Okay, so yeah. both places you're Because it doesn't that. naturally gotcha. express. Okay. So then in the next experiment, they used a ferret as a mm-hmm. model. Now, the reason why if they chose a ferret is because the neocortex is a larger and it has folds in it similar to okay. our neocortex. And the transketolase one or the transketolase enzyme is expressed mm-hmm. in the ferret brain. So when they put the human version in, Again, they saw a proliferation in the number of the basal radial glial cells compared to the wild type, and they saw that the folds in the brain were much more pronounced. So this is obviously having an impact. Again, no effect seen with the Neanderthal version. And then the last experiment was... So so the folds presumably have something related to what's different in the human brain than the Right, because when you have the folds, you're creating a greater amount of surface area per volume. Gotcha. Right. So it's, it, um, so it, 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 in the folds are correlate with an enhanced cognition. Gotcha. Then the last experiment that they did was, um, taking induced pluripotent stem cells that they would use to grow a human brain organoid and they, uh, Neanderthalized it. Mm-hmm. And when they Neanderthalized that, they ended up seeing that the basal radial glial cells actually diminished in, okay. in, in number compared to what you would typically see in, in the um, 
in the brains, mm-hmm. you know, grown with obviously the, the modern human version of the gene. And so when they put all this together, what they think is going on is that even though the brains of Neanderthals were the same size as our brains, they believe that the neuronal density in our brains, in the modern human brains, was much greater than in Neanderthal brains. And so, so this is um, kind of summarizing this. So uh, with, when you have the, the Neanderthal version of the TKTL1 gene, uh, the basal radial glial cells will produce neurons. But in, in the human version, you see, uh, again, a, a, a proliferation of the basal radial glial cells that lead to an enhanced number of neurons. Uh, and so right. this would correlate with, again, this idea of uh, humans having advanced cognition. Now, this study is one of three other studies that I'm familiar with where similar types of experiments were done. Mm-hmm. There was a study I talked about on the very first episode of Star Cells <laughs> and God uh, involving the, a protein called Nova One, where there is a modern human version and then a Neanderthal Denisovan mm-hmm. version that are different by a single amino acid. And um, you, the, the Nova One that you see in Neanderthals is also what you see in primates as well. Right. And when they grew uh, cell cultures, uh, uh, the, the human brain organoids, uh, uh, and compared that with the Neanderthalized ones where they mm-hmm. replaced the human Nova One with a Neanderthal Nova One, they ended up seeing uh, architectural differences in the in the uh, brain organoids, and they actually saw a greater level of cell proliferation in the human mm-hmm. version than in the Neanderthal version, and saw differences in gene expression patterns. Right. Uh, for adenylate, uh, sorry, succinate lyase, this is an enzyme involved in purine metabolism. There's a difference between the human version and the Neanderthal version. Again, single amino acid. This um, uh, that difference has metabolic implications okay. that's been experimentally determined. Turns out that that gene actually uh, is, or mutations in that gene actually lead to uh, uh, neuro de- neurodegenerative type diseases okay. or, n- or neural diseases. And then we also talked about these three proteins mm-hmm. that are involved in ensuring integrity during cell division. Okay. And that the, there's a modern human versions of these three proteins that are different than the Neanderthal and the Denisovan versions. And in those instances, uh, again, it, it, you, you wind up with not only having, uh, you don't wind up having human brains where the neurons that result are actually higher quality neurons. Mm. They're, they're not subject to what's called chromosomal segregation errors. So in other words, what we're seeing is through a series of studies that have been published in the last couple of years is this growing evidence that there, there is a difference in the brain mm-hmm. <laughs> physiology of modern humans compared to Neanderthals, all of which support the idea that humans had advanced cognitive capacities compared to Neanderthals. Right. And so this, uh, right, this allows us to make a scientific case for human exceptionalism and that humans are cognitively superior mm-hmm. uh, to Neanderthals. Uh, and that, if anything that we do to make a case for human exceptionalism, I think allows us to connect that to the idea that we see in Scripture that humans are made in God's image. And, and in fact, 
I would argue that the way in which we are considered to be exceptional by people that hold to that view would align with, I think, what we would consider to be qualities that reflect the Imago Dei, namely Mm -hmm. our, our capacity for symbolism and things like that. But at minimum, it means that there is a case that could be made for human exceptionalism and advanced human cognition. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that could be marshaled in support of making a case for the type of human exceptionalism we see described in Scripture in the fact that we bear God's image. What it also means is that when we look at the archaeological record, there is a fierce debate among physical anthropologists as to whether or not Neanderthals had the same Mm -hmm, uh, capacity for symbolism as we did as modern humans. And uh, for every claim that Neanderthals were engaged in symbolic behavior, there are counter studies that suggest otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's a raging debate where the evidence, or at least the interpretation of the evidence, is not clear cut. I think that these studies allow us to view the archaeological record through the lens of brain physiology now mm-hmm. in that in that when we look at claims about Neanderthals engaged in symbolism, we should take those claims with a, a grain of salt because the data in, is indicating physiologically speaking, Neanderthals probably didn't have the cognitive abilities to do the things that people are claiming mm-hmm. that they did from speculative interpretations of the archaeological record. So this kind of tips the balance. You know, you, you could make argument from just the physical data of right. the archaeological record, but this tips it in the balance of saying, no, they probably don't have that. Right. Because when you're interpreting the archaeological record, you, it's a, usually it's a, you're inferring behavior and then inferring cognitive capacities right. from, you know, the, from, you know, again, artifacts that are there. Plus, on top of that, you're having to establish a correlation between the fossil record and the archaeological record. So a lot of times you don't actually have um, any kind of fossil Mm -hmm. evidence to substantiate that those artifacts were actually produced by Neanderthals or by modern humans. Mm -hmm. So you're relying on correlations. So there's a lot of reasons uh, to, to think that, well, there's a lot of reasons why it's very difficult to properly interpret the archaeological record. So having you know, this this insight into brain physiology really goes a long way towards ensuring that we are making a proper interpretation of the archaeological record. Um, One question. So, I mean, you know, you, you've listed three or four there, but I mean, if you just take the TKLT1 uh, genetic difference there, yeah, that's that sounds like that's one amino acid. That's, you know, one mutation in the genetic code. And you get this remarkably different behavior. Now you might say, okay, there's three or four that have to happen kind of in concert or that have all right. that have all worked roughly at the same time period. Wouldn't that lend support to a evolutionary way of looking at things? Because that's kind of a relatively minor change to get a very marked right. difference. Or how would you respond to that claim that this lends more support to an evolutionary rather than a so creation? I would actually error? say the opposite. Because? For two reasons. One is the Neanderthal version of these genes uh, is the same in primates, the great apes, old world monkeys. We see in many instances Mm -hmm. the same gene in in the mouse genome. And for a biologist, what that means is that that particular gene must be so critical 
to the organism's survivability that mutational changes are not are being weeded out okay. by by natural selection. Okay, so the mechanism of evolution would right. say, given the the uniformity of how much right. it shows up, to have even one change is right. probably going to get weeded out. Right. So one way you determine functionality in the critical mm-hmm. uh, functional role for a particular gene sequence or um, uh, or for a particular amino acid in a protein is by look, comparing mm-hmm. it to other organisms. Okay. If it's the same, you consider it to be, again, critical, a criti- of critical function. But, so, I mean, I w- my, my initial response to that would be, yeah, okay, I see it is pretty critical, and there's lots of ways where it can go wrong. But the fact that you can change it, one, I mean, I, I could imagine a whole slew of things that right. did get weeded out, but you got this one. It's like, oh, wow, you got this dramatic change. And right. so... Well, to me, what, what's, what becomes suspicious is that you have this, it's not a single amino acid change in a single protein that has mm-hmm. a positive effect, but it's a single amino acid change in a suite of proteins that are having an effect. And all of those effects are wor- working towards enhanced okay. cognition in humans. It starts to become highly suspicious. And this list is, in my opinion, probably the tip of the iceberg, that there's going to be other there's mm-hmm. going to be other discoveries of differences that also are meaningful, particularly with respect to gotcha. supporting advanced cognition. So, 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 so in an evolutionary scenario, you might expect that you get the T- TKLT somewhere, but it wouldn't show up. The NOVA would be in the same one. If, yeah. if, that, if that works that way, like, you'd see a smattering of those rather than all of them concentrated it, like in one organism. This, this really eerie confluence of, right. of <clears throat> mutations that are all working together to increase, you know, advanced cognition. And so, in other words, it looks like a plan came together. Right? <laughs> All right, I, I'll give you that one. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, yeah, so it's, it's uh, you know, to, to me, the you, you're right. If it's just an isolated instance or if it's happening in several genes but they're not really working in concert mm-hmm. with each other, yeah, I, I, might, I might buy it, you know, but the fact that it's, again, having this, this directional effect mm-hmm. Right. So that means that even if you're viewing, you know, the origin of humanity in evolutionary terms, this is would be, I think, evidence for a type of theistic evolution. Or if you're looking at the origin of humanity from a, a creationist perspective, you would say, well, it really looks like a creator intervened mm-hmm. to create this distinct set of genes that are unique to humans to give us advanced, you know, cognition and make, to make us exceptional mm-hmm. in a way that that aligns with the image of God. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. It's you know, just initially when you say, "Hey, it's a single trans or a single mutation," it's easy to get a single mutation at work. But I, I, yeah, you know, the the fact that you have multiple ones of these in the same organism that all work together to do so that that does. Uh, I'm with uh, yeah. Hannibal there. That, that that seems like a plan's <laughs> coming together. So. <laughs> All right. Well, um, anything else, Jeff? No, I'm done. I think I'm done. So uh, we'll go ahead and, and, and uh, bring it to a close. And uh, just want to say thank you so much for watching. Uh, it, we would invite you to interact with the, our, the content of this video in the comment section. And again, remember to check out our website, reasons.org. Uh, follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And also, again, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One. Set a reminder so you get notified 
when the next episode of Star Cells in God drops. And until then, uh, next time, remember that the more that we discover about science, the more we have reasons to believe.